Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Welcome to Dose of Leadership. So happy you're tuning into the show, another Equity Bank series-sponsored podcast when we talk about entrepreneurship and leadership. Another good conversation. Alan Banta is on the show. A lot of you probably never heard of Alan Banta. You know, one thing I love about doing this show is when the people are very hesitant on coming on the show. And Alan is one of those guys. And he wasn't hesitant because he didn't support leadership or support the show. It's because he truly has a humble spirit. And I love it when someone who's humble enough, they feel like they don't have anything to contribute. And Alan was one of those guys. He said, what am I going to talk about? Why is anybody interested in me? He was very almost shy and hesitant to come on the show. And I, again, I always like it when people are like that because that means it's usually going to be a pretty good conversation. And Alan didn't disappoint. Alan really opened up and we talked about his life. And it's funny that Alan would think that he didn't have anything to contribute to the show. He's been in the oil industry. Well, he's a geologist, first of all. He started out as a geologist in the, the mid-70s. And then in 1980, a group of entrepreneurs got together and they founded Trans-Pacific Oil Corporation. And um, it was primarily backed by some Japanese investors. And Alan just happened to be at the right place at the right time. And he had some relationships with these guys. And they really saw something in Alan and said, we want you to be a part of this. And so Alan was there from the very beginning in 1980. And it's an amazing story because it was, um, you know, he just had, a, his, I think, his first kid newly married, um, it was one of those deals where he's really betting on the come but that this is going to pay off. And he essentially, you know, worked 24-7 in those, I guess they had to be some dark days. We talk about that. And it had to be fear, you know, living in faith that this is going to pan out. And what I like about Alan, when you see him, and I know this is an audio podcast, but let me paint the picture. I mean, this guy shows up. You talk about a sharp-dressed man. This guy is meticulous, sharp-dressed, attention to detail. And a lot of it has to do because of his business partner, the the Japanese, and they're very meticulous about detail and, and image and presentation. And again, Alan is very humble. He's very quiet. He's almost shy when you talk to him. But he's got a level of intensity to him, and I know you can't see that, but I saw it, and I could see it emanating from him. So remember what I've always said on this show, this humble, teachable spirit combined with this level of intensity and that sweet spot where that Venn diagram intersects, that makes the mark of a great leader. And I think Alan is one of those guys. In fact, I know he is. And you're going to see that and hear that when we talk about in in this conversation. It's going to come out of him, and you'll see that. And I just think that that is the type of leadership that we need in everyday life and in organizations, those that... It, realize that it's not about them. It's not about you. It's about the organization as a whole. It's about making the campsite better than you found it. You hear me say that time and time again. It's about being part of some purpose that's bigger than yourself. And I just really think that that, that Alan hits the mark. So he does bring a lot to the table, and you're going to hear that in this conversation. Again, he's been with Trans-Pacific Oil Corporation since 1980. It's um, Obviously, the oil business has highs and lows, but Trans-Pacific has continually moved forward through consistent and careful expansion, making it one of the top 20 oil and gas producers in Kansas. They they, they really pride themselves in their operational capability, their efficiencies, their strategy, and again, their leadership. Their plan for growth will continue to be a mixture of acquiring and drilling, 
But at their core, they have a leadership culture. And I know that's why they've been so successful. And Alan is the president, and he's a key contributor to that. I really think you're going to enjoy this conversation. It is brought to you by my friends at Equity Bank, another organization that understands leadership, that understands the entrepreneur. I'm glad and privileged that they're sponsoring this Dose of Leadership podcast. They, they're a team that knows what it takes to start, to grow a business. I love watching them grow into one of the fastest growing banks in, in the Midwest. They've listed on the NASDAQ exchange. They've got locations in Kansas, Oklahoma, Missouri, Arkansas. They know how to lead for growth. They understand the entrepreneur. So if your current bank isn't cutting, cutting it for you, go check out my friends at Equity Bank at equitybank.com. I think you'll be impressed. Thanks for listening. Let's join a conversation with Alan Banta, the president of Trans-Pacific Oil, here on Dose of Leadership. Well, Alan, thanks for coming on the show. Welcome, my friend. Well, happy to be here. So Wichita native? Yes. How, so tell me a little bit about that. Where did you grow up and how did you? Yeah, I've been here all my life. Went to um, grade school, junior high, high school, Wichita State, all within about four miles of where I was born. Where was, and that was where? Where did you go to school? I uh, went to Adams and then uh, Robinson, Southeast, Wichita State. Grew up near the Central and uh, Edgemore area. Oh, yeah. yeah. Great childhood, great fun growing up in that area at the time. Yeah. Yeah, you know, just kind of a very standard middle class stuff. Yeah. And Wichita State, when you're going there, what was the dream? What were you looking? What were you hoping to do when you were going through at the time? Well, I was always interested. From the time I was a little kid, I was interested in science, and and particularly I was interested in rocks and rock collection, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, um, my the neighbor who lived behind us, who was. Uh, 10 or 12 years older than me, he was, when I became aware of rock identification, classification, all that kind of thing, he was going to WCU getting his degree in geology. And so he knew all this stuff about rocks and all these really cool rocks. And so I'd go over there and he'd teach me about them. So uh, as I got into college, I pretty much, when I started, I knew I wanted to get a degree in geology. Interesting. Yeah. So in, in getting a degree in geology, did you know you would get in the, the petroleum field the oil, or just you just were so fascinated with rocks that you just wanted to get it? Yeah, really. I What I thought was when I started is that I, I had this vision of myself wandering around in the mountains of Colorado, digging up cool <laughs> rocks. And, right. you know, I didn't really think through what the economic benefit might be of that. <laughs> right. But um, and so <clears throat> as I started, I was leaning toward what's called hard rock geology, which would be, you know, mining kind of sure. a thing. Uh, but as I got deeper into um, college, especially my junior year, I realized that most of the jobs in this area were in the oil business. Right. And so when you got out of college, did you go right into the uh, working for an oil company? Right. I started, <clears throat> excuse me, I started um, Working for a uh, for a very very small oil company while I was still in school, just kind of interning. Yeah, didn't call it that then, but yeah. Anyway, I I was and got out. He hired me, uh, and that was in uh, May of 1979. Price of oil started moving upward. As soon as I got out, we got bought out by a small public company here in Wichita called Tomlinson Oil, and uh, so then I worked there starting in the fall of 79. And then what led you to where you're at now? I mean, how much time in between that and then where you're at now? Yeah, so that's um, 
that is a little bit of a curious story. The so things were booming in seventy nine, eighty, eighty one. Price of oil was yeah. forty dollars a barrel, and um, high demand for geologists and even young, inexperienced ones like me. So I began to. There were a lot of headhunters that were looking to you know move people around. I was getting hit up with even just a year and a half experience to move on. And, and so I moved to another small oil company away from this, the public company. I moved over a company called PV Properties. And they were a startup essentially looking for a geologist to help them do exploration. So I moved over there and uh, the price of oil started to decline and they were looking to find a way to lay off part of my salary or reduce the cost of having me around. And about that time, um, we ran into a, a Japanese company that had come over here in 1980 and built a drilling rig and was leasing that rig out. They weren't doing oil and gas exploration. They were just a service company that rigged for hire yeah. thing. Yeah. And, of course, the rig was becoming less and less utilized as the price of oil went down. So their idea was they'll find somebody who can identify places to drill and then, you know, use their rig to drill ideas. And they got to know me. And long story short, in December of 83, I started working half-time with them and Half time with PV properties, so the cost was my cost was diffused <laughs> between two places, and uh, then as things got even worse and got really really bad by 1986, uh, I went totally over to the Japanese uh, company side, which is name of the company. Then was Trans Pacific Oil and still is. So, and so. In the mid-80s when you're there, are they looking at you for your technical and tactical expertise around geology? Or were you, was this turning into a leadership role, or was it a leadership role at that time? No, it was it was just geology at just that time. Just geology. Yeah. yeah. So how did that morph into – I mean, here we are in 2019. So from 83 to there, how did, how did the progression to CEO happen? How did yeah. that happen? Well – so 86 comes along. I'm working uh, just with the Japanese, and uh, there were two employees, and, and then there was a, uh, one of the principals from Japan was actually living here at that time. So we were the, – the rig was down. The business, you know, in Kansas, things were really, really bad. There were not any wells being drilled, and um, – you know, I was start, starting to think of backup options for, you know, another career, make yeah. a career change, you know, what can I do? Thought about getting in the stock brokerage or something like that. Um, and so our, in the Japanese group, they were trying to figure out what to do next. And at, up to that point, everything that they had done had been funded by basically one family. And that includes all the cost of drilling and running the rig and all that. And they were a financially significant family, but obviously there was a limit to how much money they wanted to spend on drilling. And 
exploration right. in the United States. So the principal that was living here said, you know, we need to find some other investors and and that way we could drill more wells. We'll we'll take a portion of what, you know, each project, but then we'll fill in with some other investors. So I'm going to Japan and see if I can raise some money. And so he took off and several months went by and and um he said, you know, when um if I can do this, then we're going to want to get going right away. And so in about July of 87, uh, he called me up one day and said, well, I've raised $5 million, and so we need to get going. And, and I said, when do you want to start? And he said, August 1st. <laughs> and uh, we really weren't ready for that yeah. <laughs> at all. And so uh, there was a lot of, uh, in order to drill an oil well, you have to, first of all, go lease the land from a mineral owner. And, you know, there's a lot of prep. And, and we we did not have any of that done. We didn't have any inventory of projects to drill. We maybe had one or two. And their idea was to... Um, start drilling first August and just continuously drill with the rig. And, uh, and then about July 20th or 25th, there was a freak flood out in uh, Pratt County and it flooded the rig that was laying, it was down in a storage yard, flooded that and did a bunch of damage. And so we had to, so your only option you, was, yeah, so we had, to, <laughs> so long story short is that, um, it was just me and our receptionist slash bookkeeper, and um, you know there was only, you know, the only solution was to dive in and start working on things. And furthermore, the way we had at that point, we had restructured my compensation, so my base salary was very very low, and then anything so that I did, yeah. I would get a commission or a royalty or a day rate or whatever. And of course I'm coming off of 1986 with really low income. And so I was going to do everything that I could to, to make money. So for the next couple of years, I didn't sleep very much. I was going to say, so are you married kids at this time? Or are you single? Yeah, that was the, unfortunately, I got married in 1986 <laughs> when there was nothing else going on. And then right. 87, 88, 89, um, I was gone a lot. And, um, and the good thing is that um, I did get exposed to Every facet of the business. Well, sure, and, and, yeah, because you put out of out of necessity and out of survival, right? right? right. You just got what, thrown it, in the water. So take to speak. me back to your mindset. Then was how did you know that this was going to be successful? I mean, I mean, obviously there were moments. I'm sure you had doubts in your mind, and oh yeah, and mm -hmm. limiting beliefs were just bombarding you. Well, what what kept you going? Because man, that's that's playing a long game right there. If you're sticking, you know, and these guys are counting on you to drill and you aren't even prepared for it, but you just had to go get things done. I mean, was it a dark time and you're looking back on it? I mean, what, how did, what kept you going, I guess? You know, there were dark times in there. Um, you know, the price of oil stayed down and, um, uh, you know, but the invest, 
investment group, the Japanese investment group, were were really good guys, and they believed in me, believed yeah. in me enough to yeah. basically hand me five million dollars and say, "Go get it." And um, you know, so I felt a really strong obligation to you know do everything that I could to make that yeah. a successful program. I mean, it you know they had trusted me and they they understood the business at a level but they weren't technically astute really and uh so you know i had that and really i think that by 86 87 you know i'd been in the business now for seven eight years and and i could see that there was a lot of of opportunity and um I thought that given the state of the industry, I was well positioned. A lot of people were getting washed out. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the number of competent, experienced geologists or administrators even was, you know, going down daily. So I felt like, and they, the investor group always felt like that the price of oil would rebound. a lot of people didn't. A lot of people declared the end, you know, yeah, of the business the in Kansas and, right. and and got out, sold out, changed industries, whatever. And, um, you know, so it, it seemed to me that 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 there was an opportunity there. And and, um, and that combined with them placing their trust in us, you know. I Yeah, that's a powerful combination. I mean, the fact that they, they saw something in you, obviously, and they believed in you. And obviously to keep you going because uh, you're betting on the come that this is going to work out. So you saw something right. that, you know, the ability, okay, these people are kind of falling off. I see something special in myself or, or you know, there's an opportunity here that kept you going. Right. That's pretty powerful. I mean, I think that particularly because of that uncertainty, and I guess that's what always fascinates me is like how do individuals deal with fear and uncertainty because it's always there right it never goes away i think the successful people that end up leading significant lives and have significant organizations they get comfortable with the fact that fear and uncertainty never goes away what what is that how does that resonate with you when i say that well that's almost the definition of our business you know yeah. 50% of the wells we drill are a failure and so you have to be able to emotionally and and financially withstand that. And so you have to look at the world a little different. It has mm-hmm. to be, you know, an optimistic view. Mm-hmm. And then you add in the geopolitical dynamics and, you know, price of oil, volatility, things like that. I mean, it's, it's, it's a difficult business, but um, – and so you have to have, you know, some people don't, they, they don't like it and they, um, you know, it, it makes them crazy. And certainly when you take those hits, drill a dry hole or whatever, it's a gut punch. And, but you've got to be able to get over that and look at the next one. You have a tremendous amount of humility, a very humble spirit. But you seem, I, I see a level of intensity in you as well. I mean, are you an intent? do you see yourself as an intense guy? Tenacious, maybe, I guess is another one. Are you a tenacious guy? You don't quit. Yeah, I guess maybe tenacious would be reasonable. It, 
you know, the, the business we're in teaches you a lot of humility. I mean, yeah. I have drilled deals that I felt like I'd, you sure know, thing. bet the bank on and, and were just a slam dunk. And no. Mother Nature will Kick you will teach you, you know, about that. So it, it uh, you know, we – you have to be tenacious. You have to keep going. You have to keep looking. It's out there. You mm-hmm. You get a – you hit a good lick and and find some really nice wells and you know you think you're really on to something here and then you'll string together a number of dry holes you know so it it uh, it, it can be difficult and i i think that you have to have a, a certain level of intensity it's a competitive environment too you know yeah, a lot yeah. of people are 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 looking we're not the only ones in fact in Kansas there's 2300 operating companies and so a lot of those are mom and pops. We're probably the 12th or 13th largest. But, you know, then you've got some large public companies that have been operating in Kansas over the last few years. And so it's very competitive. And, and you've got to, you know, you've got to stay ahead of your competitors. And you like that competition or, when, does, you know what I mean? Does it, are you at the point now where you're comfortable or that, that that's part of your um, I don't know where failure doesn't even, you know, is failure like an almost a nonsensical word to you? Does that, you know what I mean? Because you've seen it's just it's just part of the deal, right? You said fifty yeah. percent. So wh- what does it even mean to fail, right? Yeah, failure on a individual project basis really is not part of the equation because you know it's going to happen. So what you have to do is is look at the composite investment performance of the company, look on a larger level, and and analyze it in that in that respect and be able to and, and then make sure that the investors understand that you've got to look at it with a longer view and 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 a more of a global view because it you know it can it can get everybody's dauber down we string together three or four or five dry holes and yeah. but you know that doesn't mean you have to change your plan you know yeah. you just or your model you you just have to Again, step back. It's an investment over time. It's a great investment. There's curveballs of price of oil and this and that, but um, you know it's it's a great business, and and um, you you have to you have to just keep going. And when did you find when when was the kind of the uh, the the moment when it kind of paid off the first time after this kind of dry spell? What happened? Yeah, you know, the um, as we began to build up and find oil and built our operating base in the in that two years where I didn't sleep, um, uh, you know, we began to be able to hire some other employees and 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 I could see that we had a foundation uh, that could grow into something much bigger. Yeah, and. So we started doing some acquisitions of other companies' uh, production, buying existing wells and um, expanding our geographic uh, area. And, uh, you know, I could – and the investors were behind all this. They they felt comfortable and were excited about what we are doing. They're optimistic about uh, us and the price of oil. So – we were able to keep growing the company and, and, um, you know, at that point I realized that 
there was something there for the long term. Now, we're a little bit unusual in that we're not a family-owned company. We're not multi-generational. We're not public. We're private. And, and uh, most of our investment capital came from Japan. So, and that made us very unusual in Kansas and almost a unicorn in the United States. There just weren't very many, (laughs) you know, companies like us. So there were some challenges and some dynamics there when you're talking about banking and and finance and uh, that we had to deal with. But overall, I knew I had a great investor base that was behind me. I could see a lot of opportunity. We built that foundational platform so now we could move that forward. Hey, we're about halfway through the conversation, but I wanted to take the time to talk about my good friends, the sponsor here of the special series at Equity Bank. Have you ever noticed that most business bankers seem to really understand just one thing? It's banking, right? And not a lot about business. It makes sense since most banks were built generations ago and now they're often run by caretakers, not business builders. Well, it's not the case here at Equity Bank. The bankers at Equity Bank didn't inherit a bank generations ago. They built one of their own. They know that building something takes expertise, vision, and hard work. And over the past decade, they've built one of the region's fastest growing banks by working side by side with customers, with entrepreneurs, with leaders in communities all throughout Kansas, Missouri, Arkansas, and Oklahoma. Recently, Equity Bank was listed on the NASDAQ exchange, which gives them even greater capabilities to take on those big deals that growing businesses need to keep on growing. So if you're tired of talking to bankers who've never really ran or owned or built a business, then I think you're going to be pleasantly surprised when you talk to my friends at Equity Bank. Thanks for listening to this show. Let's get back to the conversation, this unique and special series on leadership and entrepreneurship brought to you by my friends at Equity Bank. That's fascinating to me. I mean, particularly I'm thinking back in the the mid to late 80s, the communication challenges are completely different than they are now. (laughs) You know, um, I don't know how much of a cultural challenges you were dealing with. Man, a lot of faith and a lot of trust, you know, for them to be over there. I mean, I'm assuming they probably came over quite a bit, but I don't know. They're still putting a lot of faith in this Kansas boy to get this going, right? Yeah, it... uh in retrospect, it's a little shocking. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I think that um, they, you know, we could, even though there were cultural differences, there was a big age difference at the time. I'm, you know, 27, 28, 29, 30. They're in their 50s. Um, you know, there were a lot of differences that that uh, one would think could be difficult to overcome. But um, I think they knew I was always honest with them. Yeah. I mean, and the fact is that they could see that we didn't win all the time. But when we lost, they knew that we gave it our best shot. Yeah. And, they knew uh, the risks involved. Yeah. In this. yeah. And uh, we were always very, very transparent. And, and I tried to, to be sensitive to the cultural differences which they appreciated. And, you know, there was a time there in the 80s where a lot of Japanese investment was coming to the United States in real estate and, mm-hmm. you know, some, you know, signature real estate purchases in New York and on the coast and all that. And and um, there was, I think that they felt 
a lot of times Japanese investors were being taken advantage of, and they were. Um, they wanted to own real estate or be in the United States, and sometimes at any cost. And they didn't really understand some of the dynamics of investment in complex structures here. And, and so uh, I think they appreciated, and more so as time went on, that um, you know, we were very transparent and, and, and um, you know, it wasn't – wasn't some kind of a scheme, or, sure. You know. Yeah, wouldn't yeah, wasn't some Ponzi scheme or right, something like that. Right. So I loved how you said how the, the the authenticity and the integrity. Something we talk about a lot on this show, obviously, in the leadership thing is that is that your primary, you think, core value or trait that's kind of led to your success in this in this industry. Do you think? Yeah, I, I think that um, honesty. Our industry has you know, a checkered reputation. Sure. And there certainly are a lot of what we call promoters that have been in the business over the years. And they're trying to make money off of the investors, not by finding oil. And we, from the very get-go, we always designed everything we did. The structures of the company, structure of the deal was based on building reserves, finding oil. It was not trying to buy something and flip it or, you know, make a, a, a giant overhead fee or something like that. So it's always been about uh, trying to build wealth through finding oil and gas reserves. And, you know, I tell our staff that, you know, basically the, the staff and the operating company, we're just a, a, a service business of sorts. And we have two customers. We have our vendors who are our customers. We have our investors who are our customers. And we've got to treat both of them with respect. And we expect them to treat us with respect and do the right thing. And if we do the right thing for them, then you know, hopefully they'll do the right thing for us. If they don't, then we fire them. And so uh, it's always been a, 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 an important part for us to pay our bills very, very timely. So that when we hire somebody to do work for us, they know they're going to get paid. Right. And and likewise, the reporting to our investors and the you know post drill analysis and things like that to show them what happened, we always get that to them in a timely manner and and and, and very transparent and you know what went wrong, what went right, you know what the long term result would be. And so, I think that. That attitude and transparency has has given the people we work with a lot of trust in yeah. what we're doing. You know, one thing is you're striking me. I'm listening to this and I'm observing you and seeing how you are. And, getting, and just again, I've only known you for uh, less than an hour here, but you seem like a guy that appreciates and understands the value of the small, simple things. What do I mean by that? Is like the small daily habits that taking by themselves may seem inconsequential, but the consistency behind those doing the right thing, paying on time, you know what I mean? They're small little simple things, but that collective is what, what drives the, the significance. Does that make sense? Did, what do you think? Yeah, I, I, I think you're probably reading that right with me. I, I, we do big things. We do slightly cutting edge things, and, and but ultimately – You've got to take care of all the the details, yeah. and there's a lot, a lot of details in our business, and some of them are very, 
you know, just very ordinary things, you know, keeping and, and it goes clear back to, you know, working with the landowners in the field, keeping things clean, painting things, you know, keeping the fences up. I mean, there's a lot of detail and um, you've got to make sure that the staff and, you know, that they understand that you've got to pay attention to detail, you know, land, you know, we've got a lot of legal documents, you know, small description changes or typos or things like that. You just, you can't have that. It just causes confusion mm -hmm. later, you know, and it might, and this happens to us as we buy other companies or production, you know, we'll, we'll get their documents in and, you know, title will be clouded because there was a typo, you yeah, know, yeah. 20 years ago. And, you know, it was just a typo. And yeah. so, um, and now with, you know, all of the email stuff flying around and, and documents like that, you know, people tend to, well, they do move faster. And so it can be easy to rip something out and launch it and not read it. And you can create the wrong impression. Mm -hmm. You can, and certainly if there's, if it's loaded with, you know, poor language, poorly crafted, you know, things like that, it creates an impression with whoever receives it. And so, Everything needs to be focused on some of these small details. If you take yeah. those small details, then usually the rest will start to fall into place. I agree. I can't agree with you more, and I wish more people would understand the power behind that because you're right. It's the attention to detail is so powerful. And I think sometimes you can feel like you're walking on the edge of being a micromanager, um, but it's not micromanagement. It's the attention to detail. And if you do the little things right well the first time, right, it's kind of like the whole thing in carpentry where you, you know, measure twice and cut once, right? Yeah. That's an attention to I, detail. I, I do, you know, but you're absolutely right. There are times when I feel like I'm being a micromanager. Yeah. And, and, and I think there's line. probably sometimes where our staff thinks probably I am, you know, yeah. because – I do do some of the walking around said, do you remember <laughs> we yeah. were working on, you know, where are you at? Yeah. And, um, and, and that's, you know, my management style is, is to interact with everybody a lot. And I've, you know, we've got engineering, production, accounting, geology, land and legal. And, but I have some exposure to all of that yeah. in this you know, 35, 40 year career. And, uh, at some point in time I've done part of, or a lot of what yeah, they're doing. Yeah, and so, um, I can speak their language and feel their issues and understand it. You know, you, whenever you get different disciplines, you know, petroleum engineering and petroleum geology seem related, but they're really not. And they, they can uh, have trouble understanding each other's issues yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and then you throw in land and legal and you know geology doesn't understand that and yeah. so there's a component of of making sure that uh, everybody does stay on the same page you know even though they may speak slightly different languages yeah i can imagine again it's a fine line i can imagine being in your role particularly when you've touched every aspect of the business and it's probably an internal – I know it has been for me when I've been in those roles where at what point do I pull back? When do I insert myself? You know, you're always kind of walking that line. And I think that's normal for every leader, right? And I think you have – because particularly in, in depending on the, 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 the magnitude of the business transaction, I mean, 
sometimes lives are at stake. You got to make sure all the details are right, right? Or millions of dollars are at stake. You got to maybe look at it one more time. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. And if you're going to get labeled a micromanager, then so be it. But I mean, I guess it's sometimes you have to, it's just a fine line, you know? Yeah. How intentional are you on your leadership development? I imagine you got so many aspects. You don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. You're just kind of doing, I think, a lot. Yeah, it's probably something I should spend a little more time on. I I read things. I think about things. I talk to our our key uh, managers, and and we talk about uh, responsibility and issues. And, you know, we're very flat. Anybody in our office can come walking in my yeah. office and say, hey, I got an issue, you know, or why is this? Or I don't understand why in the world we do it this way. And I'm fine with that. It, um, But, you know, ultimately, I'm probably at heart more of an entrepreneur than I am a leader. And You're more visionary than you are yeah. brass tacks, right? Yeah. And yeah. luckily, I've got some great people that I work with that um, – you know, they they will look at HR issues and, um, you know, things like that that I'm not that interested in. Yeah. Well, it's it, I, it's interesting because you went down the path initially because you liked rocks and you're passionate about this. And you, it seems like the, being a successful geologist would be very technical and tactical in nature, right? And a successful geologist is going to be technical and tactical around rocks. But when you got this opportunity with these Japanese investors in the mid-'80s, it kind of unleashed or at least exposed or revealed kind of the entrepreneur in you, right? Because for those two years, you had to be entrepreneurial in spirit to get this done, right? Right. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And it, it, it probably, looking back, you know, I don't know – if I would have ever been happy just being purely a, sure. a technical geologist. Yeah. There are, you know, we've got three great geologists in our company, and they have absolutely no interest in looking at a financial statement or <laughs> right. working with investors right. or whatever. Absolutely right. not. And, and uh, you know, I kind of like it. And I guess you look back to when I was a kid and first starting to play in bands, um, you know, I, I – I would go out, I was probably 14, 15, and we need to try to find a place to play. That was what the whole goal was, trying to make money and yeah. be in front of people. So I went to the downtown library, and they had a, in those days, like a, you know, yellow pages of high schools around Kansas. So I copied all those pages, and I just sent letters out to, like, every high school in Kansas and said, you know, we want to play your prom. And, you know, <laughs> Amazingly, I got a number of responses, and you know, we ended up playing a bunch of proms, and you know, we we're barely old enough to drive, and had no idea, you know, <laughs> yeah. the logistics of yeah. going to Fort Scott, Kansas, and doing a prom, and hauling a bunch of gear, and yeah. getting a hotel, and all that. So, you know, but that was probably kind of an entrepreneurial thing, well, yeah, and, and it's like, you it's, know, it's like. Saying yes and figuring out the details later, I love that kind of aspect of, yeah. of human beings when they do that, right? <laughs> because I think that pushes that that's that's the edge of life, you know, where you you can say yes and let's just figure it out. And and I do think that's what successful leaders do. And I know you you know 
pre-recording, you're thinking, well, I don't have anything to, <laughs> to offer. And I'm like, yeah, of course you do. We all do because then that's, I think that's the takeaway from me meeting you is that, you know, sometimes you just got to go out and say yes and figure out the details later, but that the details do matter, right? And you just can't slough over them. Right. But saying yes is the initial thing, right? Saying yes to it. And that's what you did in 83 when, okay, I believe in you. These Japanese guys are telling you. And for two years, you didn't sleep, you yeah. know? I mean, it's crazy, you know? Yeah, most, I mean, people, most people would give up. I mean, think, I mean, be honest. I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to make you feel uncomfortable, but the vast majority of the people would have given up, you know? Yeah, I don't know. It, it, it possibly, it, it, to me, it was, it was a clear opportunity. And, and I think today, you know, I see a lot of opportunity still for our company and, oh, and for good. the business. And, yeah. and um, a lot of people right now with the, you know, different things going on in the world. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of people that have their dauber down mm-hmm. and, and especially in a, a mature province like Kansas, you got a lot of mom and pops that, you know, they're going to go the way of the family farm. You know, you just yeah. can't farm 160 acres anymore and you just can't operate five or six wells anymore. And there's been a lot of that over time. And some of these families out in Hayes, Ellis, Garden City, there's been great wealth created. But then the next generation, they don't really want to live in Ellis and pump oil wells. Mm-hmm. You know, they want to move to Chicago or whatever. And so, um, you know, that that's a challenge for our business in some respects, but it's an opportunity f- to capture that consolidation for the larger operators like us. And, yeah. and, and we can talk the talk. You know, we're, we're, we're kind of an in-betweeny. We're not that big. We're not that small. We understand the the emotional issues that are involved with consolidation, you know, and there's always a lot of that, you know, these, for a lot of these uh, small companies, those wells are their babies. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I can see the, 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 I'm always, I mean, hear it in your voice and I can see it. And, you know, you're always looking at opportunities in the, in the positive. You're, you're, you're an optimistic guy. That's what leaders, that's what entrepreneurs do, right? I mean, you're I am optimistic. Th- My wife says, why are you so, always so optimistic? <laughs> so, you know, it's just, I mean, you have to be in my business. You have to be optimistic. Yeah. And, you know, there's times when, you know, you, you do feel a gut punch and you think, man, I don't know, but, the long game, you know, you just got to step back to that. You know, it's a bad deal, and, and there's a bump in the road that we're going to have to get through. It's getting a little dark right now, but it'll get brighter. Yeah, I say it on the show all the time. The leaders suspend the belief on how things are going to happen. They just know it's going to happen. That's huge, yeah. and people look up to that. That's in, that's influential. It's, it's inspiring, and I think I can see that in you, and I, and, and I know that's a huge contributor to your success. So. You thought you didn't have anything to add value to the show, but then that's that's the, the nugget right there, right? I can see it, and you, you got it in spades. I mean, and and, and uh, I could talk to you to hour for hours about about all this stuff, but we're forty minutes into this, and uh, what's next for Trans Trans Pacific? What's next for you guys? Well, we've uh, we've been consciously bringing on some uh, some younger folks, and um, even though. You know, there are as we grow, we have we have a need for experienced people, but um, we're trying to bring on some younger people and incubate them, bring them along. We're trying to do more intern things. Mm-hmm. I want to build up that younger staff that can 
carry us to the next level. And, um, you know, we've got some great young people, and it's fun to work with them. They look at things differently. Yeah. And uh, they, they demand even a higher level of transparency than, than I'm used to. And uh, they're much more focused on information right now in, in a format that is very workable. And uh, our business is still pretty old school, a lot of paper files and a lot yeah. of paper documents. And, you know, these we, we, we have wells that still produce that were drilled in the 60s. And so um, you've got a long history of, of data that is not readily available in electronic format. And so, uh, but they're making us look at it differently. You know, let's scan this whole file in and get it you know, in our database management system, then you won't have to go get the file. And of course, our older engineer says, well, what if I want to look at the file? You know, <laughs> right. so, so what we're trying to do is, is, you know, shake things up a little bit and, and build for the future. And then I do think that um, there's, go, there has to be a lot of consolidation in the Kansas oil patch. So if we can bring those reserves and producing wells under our management, we can bring a higher level of technical skill and the efficiency of, of you know, cheaper insurance and, you know, et cetera. Um, so we can drive the cost down to produce a barrel of oil. And, and then at the same time, we want to expand into some more areas. We're moving into northern Oklahoma now. And so I think what I see is just continued growth in, in that area and, and with hopefully you know, building that team up so that our older team can start stepping back and, and focusing more on, on, on larger strategic decisions. Yeah. Fantastic. Thanks for coming on the show. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks well, for coming. Hopefully I could add something that was of interest. You certainly did. Thank you, sir. Thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for listening to this special entrepreneurial and leadership series of Dose of Leadership brought to you by my friends at Equity Bank. Make sure to subscribe to Dose of Leadership where you can hear more great stories in this unique and special series. If you're enjoying this podcast, please take a listen to all of my Dose of Leadership podcasts, all of my episodes, and see why Fortune, Entrepreneur, and Inc. Magazine all recommend this as a must-listen. Dose of Leadership features candid conversations with amazing guests, leading high-performing experts and organizations, large and small, all over the world. Find Dose of Leadership on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher, and go ahead and visit doseofleadership.com where you can find out more information about the show, myself, my speaking engagements, my keynotes, live seminars, and my mastermind events. Thanks for tuning in, and have a great day.